As a follower of Jesus, there are gonna be many times where you feel overwhelmed by life circumstances. And you feel like what's, what's ahead of you, it's gonna be impossible for you to face. I was just noticing as, as I was about to start this video, I noticed that I had written a date on this Psalm. And uh, I, I write dates sometimes that are significant or where things are, you know, I really feel like a text is speaking to my situation. And um, I'd encourage you to do the same. And I wrote this date five years back before we planted our church when things were just really difficult and I didn't know what was in store for me. And as I read this, I received such confirmation and comfort from God that what was ahead for me was good. And now I sit on, on the side of deliverance and blessing and I'm, I, I can tell you that's true in my own life. But I love this, this passage. This is one of the, the best psalms, if I can say that. I'm sure I've said it a few times, but this is a fantastic psalm that's just full of, of beautiful truths about, about God. One of the best phrases in this is this, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good. And for me, that speaks to, you know, we, we all love food. Um, we, we pay a lot of money for food. We'll go out of our way to go to a great restaurant and things like that. And sometimes we have this craving for something. And so tasting is one of the best metaphors for truly experiencing something in a profound, personal, even intimate way. And the psalmist here, David, he's calling us to taste and see that the Lord is good, to experience God's goodness. And so he's going to lay out for us this incredible psalm that reminds us of why we should pursue and seek and experience God. So let's get into Psalm 34. This is, this is an acrostic poem. So that means we've seen a few of these, but each verse in this psalm begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet from A to Z, so to speak, right? Um, and this isn't a perfect one, but that's kind of the structure of this. And we see there's actually an occasion for this psalm. We've only seen a few psalms so far where there's been a clear occasion for it. And we see this in the superscript. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So most people agree this is referring to 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15, which is when David goes to the city of Gath, this Philistine city, and he's captured by the men of Achish, the king of Gath. And he, in order to defend himself, he acts like a crazy person. So he's foaming at the mouth, he's acting insane. And when the king Achish sees him, he says, I don't need more madmen in my court, get this get this crazy guy out of my face, basically. So David is taken away and he's delivered. So that's that's speaking to this occasion now. One of the questions is, well, why does 1 Samuel 21 say Akish is the king's name and here it says Abimelech? There's a few thoughts on this. One of those is Abimelech is really just, it just means my father is king. So some people think this was a title for Philistine kings. In fact, we see an Abimelech in Genesis and then we see another Bimelech later on, with, with uh, one with Abraham, one with Isaac. It's unclear, is that the same person or is this a recurring title? Because guess what? Most people who are the king, their father was king before them, right? That's, that's how dynasty works. So that's possible. Also, it might be possible that what David's doing here is he's identifying his own circumstances with the circumstances of Abraham and Isaac, that they were in a circumstance where they were in danger of losing their their lives or they're in danger of losing their their spouses and god delivered them out of that and so david is saying my situation is reminiscent of what how god delivered abraham and isaac it's possible either way but that's the circumstance and it's interesting psalm 56 you know a little bit later was written on the same occasion 
And it's worth reading because the two go together really well. Psalm 56 is written from the point of view of David being captured and his desire to be delivered. And Psalm 34 is praising God after the deliverance, that God has brought him out and given him all these blessings. So the outline, it's kind of hard to outline because it's acrostic, so really every verse kind of stands alone in a sense. But I take took, take this outline from Derek Kidner, the commentator. Verses 1 to 10 are rejoice with me, and then verses 11 to 22, learn from me. So let's look first at verses 1 to 10, rejoice with me. So the psalm, psalmist David, he's calling us to praise God along with him. Verse one says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So all times continually. That's the kind of praise that David wants to give. David has just been through something terrifying and now he's been delivered. And his response is, his commitment is that he's going to give God praise continually, constantly always giving God the praise that he deserves. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know God's will? It's what David is commanding here in Psalm 34. It's what Paul says in First Thessalonians. It's to give thanks all the time. It's to pray and to rejoice because of God's many, many blessings. So he says, I'm going to do this all the time. And he says, I'm going to bless God. We've seen this, this term blessing the Lord, blessing God a, a few times, and we'll see it more in the Psalter. What does it mean to bless God? It sounds very strange because it sounds like you're trying to give something to God. Well, you can't add anything to God. You can't give God something he doesn't already have. Well, I think what's in view here when the biblical authors use this term is to try to return to God what he has given to us. So God's poured out blessing on us, and we want to bless God as well. So no, we can't add anything to God, but we're going to live in a way that we're seeking to give everything we can to the one who is worthy of that. So that's what the idea of blessing is all about. Verse 2, he says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. So he says, first, boast in the Lord. This is an interesting phrase because that word boast in Hebrew, just like it in English, it usually refers to puffing yourself up or making yourself look great. Uh, but instead here, of instead of boasting in himself, David is saying, I'm going to boast in God and you need to boast in God as well. So he's saying, in other words, this is kind of the heart of praise is to give God credit for what he has done and to lift him up as the one who is worthy. Maybe we need to brag more about how incredible our God is. I, I love, you know, I, I love when something great happens to go and to tell people, look at what God did. You know, we had that recently in our church with someone healed of a, of a terrible um, heart attack, right? And we were, I, I was just saying to everyone, look at what God's done. This is amazing. Or when someone comes to faith in Jesus, I just heard of one yesterday, someone came to faith in Jesus and I go and tell everyone I can, can you believe God changed this person's life? That's what it means to boast in the Lord and lift him up. And then he says, magnify the Lord. This is also such a great term. To magnify literally means to make great. Again, we, we can't make God greater than he, who he already is, right? But it has the idea, this word has the idea of taking something that is small to us or far away and bringing it into its full view of making it greater in that sense. 
So it means to really see and experience just how great God is. It doesn't mean we improve God or make him greater. It means that in our view and in the view of others, he's as great as he actually is. And so we need to do that through our worship is magnify God and show everyone how amazing God is. And then David begins to share some of his testimony about how God saved him. Verse four, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This is such a great, uh, I love just every part of this Psalm. He says, he sought the Lord and just, you know, how simple that is and how much we could think about that. Too often we don't do this. We don't seek God out. And David here, he goes straight to God with his needs and God answered him. God answers prayer. We've seen that again and again. God loves to answer prayer. Don't be hesitant to go and to bring your needs before him. And then he says, those who look to him are radiant. This, this word, um, Derek Kidner points out how this word radiant is used in Isaiah 60 verse 5 of the way a mother's face lights up when her children who were lost to her are returned. It, it refers to joy, right? Radiant means joy, but it also has the idea of transformation or almost kind of the idea of like reflected glory. The idea is seen in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the word isn't used there, radiant, but that's the same idea of being transformed with the glory of God. And we see in this verse, the opposite of being radiant is being ashamed. And so those who are radiant are not ashamed. They're full of joy and they're being transformed and changed by God. Then David turns back to himself and his personal testimony in verse six. He says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So David refers to himself as a poor man, needy, weak, desperate, and God hears him and saves him. And he's going to use the same phrase of God delivering him and saving him out of all of his troubles. He's going to use that in verses 17 and 19 to refer to what God does for you and for me that God's people are delivered. So David's taking his experience of God's giving him radiance, of giving him security and deliverance, and he's saying this is going to be a normative thing for God's people. And then he introduces this figure in verse 7 called the angel of the Lord. Now this angel of the Lord is mentioned many times in scriptures. He's he's very uh, kind of a mysterious figure. All three of the mentions of this figure in the Psalms occur in Psalm 34 and 35. So these two Psalms have all the mentions of this angel of the Lord. Now, when we hear the word angel, we think of a certain kind of being. Angel just means messenger. That's all it means. So it's a messenger of God, someone who speaks for God. In this case, what's interesting is that the angel of the Lord, this figure often speaks as God. It seems like they're interchangeable, that it's someone speaking for God, but also God himself. And he receives worship, and it's it's very interesting. I think the best conclusion, without going into all the details, is that this figure is the second person of the Trinity. This is the one that became human as Jesus Christ. This is the eternal Son of God. 
And of course, the Son of God in John 1 is, is referred to as the Word of the Father. So it makes sense that the this person, this uh, second person of the Trinity, would also be the messenger of God, the way he interacts with his people. In Isaiah 37 and 2 Kings 9, we see this one who is the angel of the Lord defeating the Assyrian army who's camped outside of the city, attacking the people of God. And this angel of the Lord kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So he brings deliverance to his people, and often that means the destruction of their enemies. So when he says here that the angel of the Lord is you know, encamped around those who fear him, that is very encouraging because the angel of the Lord is strong. He's powerful. He brings judgment to those who seek to destroy God's people. It also, I think, reminds me of 2 Kings chapter 6, where Elijah is with his servant, uh, or is it Elisha? I, I think it's Elisha. And he, he, the servant is scared because there's an army gathered around them. And Elisha says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he asks God to open the servant's eyes so he can see that they're surrounded by the army of God, these chariots of fire. So God encamps around us you know, in ways that we can't always see to bring deliverance to us. God is faithful to deliver his people. Verse 8, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. This speaks of experience, right? These two, two ideas of seeing and tasting speak to experience. Seeing is the dominant way that we interact with the world. This is kind of our primary sense, is that we're, we use our eyes almost more than anything else. And tasting, as I said before, is a very intimate and powerful way to experience something. So you, it's, it's to take something into yourself, right? So he's saying he wants, to prove, wants them to prove God by their experience of him, to truly experience God. Sometimes you can't really describe something that you love, like a great food, unless somebody tastes it and experiences it for themselves. First Peter, in First Peter um, chapter 2, the apostle Peter also uses the same metaphor, probably referencing Psalm 34. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So if you've tasted that God is good, which refers in this instance to that initial experience of, of God, that initial step into the faith, then you need to long for more and to grow and to continue um, experiencing God. Let's go on in Psalm 34 to verse 9. He says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who fear God have everything they need. It's repeated twice here. You will lack nothing if you follow God. And specifically, nothing good, right? Because you may be saying, well, I asked God for this or that. He didn't give it to me. Well, he's going to give you everything that is good for you. He'll provide every single thing that you need, every single thing that will increase your joy in him and your faith in him. That's what he's going to give to you if you're a follower of him. The comparison here is made to the, the young lions. And this is great because lions are the strongest animal that was available for reference to David. And so he says the lions even have lack at times. Young lions are those who are the strongest, right? The, the most able to hunt and to provide for themselves. It'd be rare that they would go without 
enough food to eat. But even young lions, even the strongest and most self-sufficient among us will have needs that are unmet. But you are more secured in your position and your provision than the strongest of animals and the most self-sufficient of people because you have God supplying your every need. That's the reality here. You will have no lack if you follow God. So David's called them to worship with him, and now he's going to shift to the posture of a wisdom teacher. And he begins to talk like we, what we hear in the early chapters of Proverbs. So the next, the next section is verses 11 to 22, which is learn from me. So praise with me, right? Rejoice with me, and then learn from me. Verse 11, he says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So here he's asking the question of how can you have a blessed life? These verses show you how. Do you want to know how you can fear the Lord? What does that practically mean for people to fear the Lord? Well, it means you need to live in a certain way. If you truly fear God, you will guard your speech. That's what verse 13 is about. And you'll guard your actions. So verse 14 is about. You'll guard your speech that you won't speak evil and you won't speak deceitfully and you'll guard your actions by turning away from good and doing or turning away from evil and doing good right so there's a certain way of speaking and a certain way of acting i love this because it seems so basic why is it even mentioned here well life isn't too complicated there are a lot of things we get caught up in that we want to do or achieve or to become but you can do a lot of things wrong but if you fear god and you seek as a result to live in a righteous way, you will ha- be amazed at how many blessings God sends your way, at how much you'll be provided for, right? Keep it simple. Think about these simple things. How do you speak in a way that honors God and act in a way that honors God? Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So earlier we read that those who look to God are radiant, and here we have God looking to us, that he's turning his eyes and his ears toward those who are righteous. So here God is looking towards you. His face is turning towards you and his senses in a sense, right? he's, He's seeing realities that we can't see, and he's hearing us when we cry out to him. That's what it means that his eyes and his ear are toward us. And then as a, as a contrast, evil people will receive nothing, right? He's against them, and he's going to cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is interesting because often as people, we want to be remembered. We want to have an enduring legacy. We want to have fame or praise from people. We want to have accolades. But here, the punishment is not just that God will destroy those who are evil, but that he'll erase the memory of them. That It'll be as if they never existed. This is a tragic end, terrible fate to be completely forgotten and to have no enduring impact on the world. That's what God will do to those who reject him. Now, we got a lot more here, so let's skip down to verse 19. We'll try to wrap this up in in a few minutes here. Verse 19, he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So even though this the servant of God is afflicted, God delivers him without his bones being broken. Why is this so significant? Well, this this passage here points backward and forward in Scripture. So it points back to the Passover lamb. 
that we see in Exodus tw- chapter 12, the bones of the Passover lamb were not broken. That was an explicit command. Do not break the bones. And then we see it also points forward to Jesus Christ. So when Jesus died on the cross, we, we hear this in John 19, 33. It says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So they had been breaking the legs of the other people that were, uh, the two other men that were on the crosses. It says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So that's almost certainly referencing Psalm 34. So what what is this saying? Well, it's saying that Jesus is both the Passover lamb whose bones were preserved. He is a picture of that perfect Passover lamb. And he's also just like David. He's one who is afflicted, who is righteous, and God delivers him out of that. And so we see this, this picture fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's a really amazing passage. And then David ends this way. He says, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. I love it. So the same, same phrase will be condemned, right? For the wicked, they're going to be condemned. For the righteous, they will not be condemned. Um, God, God will make sure that not only are they saved in this life, but they're saved when they stand before the judgment seat of God and have to give account for their lives. They will not be condemned. You know, <clears throat> one, one last thought on this I think was, is really helpful for me as I was reading um, Gerald Wilson's commentary. He observed how this passage parallels in many ways the Beatitudes of Jesus. And this stood out to me. There's a couple of things in here that stood out to me, and I said, that kind of feels like the Beatitudes. Um, and if you don't know what the passage I'm speaking of in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Right? So he has all these, these statements with blessed at the beginning. And you see this, right, in the sense of, obviously, the idea of being blessed is very prominent in this passage. Blessing God, it starts with, and then verse 8, right, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in God. It reminds us of Psalm 1, which I say, seems like almost every Psalm, but it, uh, it does remind us of that at the beginning, right? How do you be blessed? And then if you look at some of the topics in this passage, you know, Jesus had said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And David identifies how he himself was poor, how he was a poor man at this point, how he was needy. So David reflects that same poverty of spirit. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied and David said here that those who seek the Lord will lack nothing, right? That we can come and taste and see that God is good and that we'll have everything we need in God. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And here in verse 14, David said that we should seek peace and pursue it. And of course, not many people in the Bible before Jesus are called sons of God, but David was one of the few that was called a son of God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. David is telling them through this whole section to seek purity in their speech and their actions. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. This is really the focus of the entire passage is David who's been persecuted because of his faithfulness to God and God has delivered him out of this. So it's not a perfect parallel. It's not a parallel for every single beatitude, but it's amazing to me how consistent the scripture is on this. That if you, even if you are nothing in the eyes of the world and you seem, you know, mistreated and poor and all these things, 
if you have the Lord, if you seek the Lord and you fear him, you will ultimately lack nothing. God will give to you everything you need. So I'll end with just the same reminder, the same uh, plea of the psalmist of David, which is taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him.